Hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of CHESS, I would like to welcome you to the CHESS Journal Podcast. My name is Dr. Gretchen Winter, and I am your CHESS Podcast Moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be a great discussion of the use of bronchodilator responsiveness testing and methacholine challenge tests for the diagnosis of asthma. We are fortunate to have Dr. Samir Gupta and Dr. Don Cookcroft as our guests. Dr. Gupta and his colleagues wrote a research article in the August 2020 Chess Journal, Performance Characteristics of Spirometry with Negative Bronchodilator Response and Methacholine Challenge Testing and Implications for Asthma Diagnosis. Dr. Gupta is a clinician scientist at Li Ka Shing Knowledge Institute of St. Michael's Hospital and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. His research focuses on knowledge translation across the spectrum of respiratory illnesses, especially on electronic tools for behavior change. Dr. Cocroft wrote the accompanying editorial on the use of methacholine challenge testing in the diagnosis of asthma. Dr. Cocroft is a professor of medicine at the University of Saskatchewan, and his research focuses on asthma and bronchoprovocation testing. The authors of this article sought to examine the performance of these tests used for asthma diagnosis in order to help provide guidance for their use and interpretation. The study looked at patients who had already been diagnosed with asthma, and it looked at those who had a positive bronchodilator response and for those who didn't. And those who had negative results, they then underwent methacholine challenge testing. For patients who were on asthma controller medications who had a negative methacholine challenge test, their medications were gradually tapered and serial methacholine challenge tests were done after the tapering. Those who still had a negative methacholine challenge test off of asthma therapy were assessed by a pulmonologist and underwent follow-up tests. So now that we have a little bit of background information on the research study, Dr. Gupta, can you please explain to our listeners how spirometry and methacholine challenges are commonly used for the diagnosis of asthma? Sure. So, so thanks, Dr. Winter. And um, in terms of the clinical course, you know, we conventionally start with spirometry, and we we make the diagnosis of asthma in patients who have a post-bronchodilator improvement in FEV1 of at least 12% and 200 milliliters. Um, and spirometry is helpful because it, you know, it tells you something about the severity of lung function. So it tells you if there's obstruction and if so, how bad that obstruction is. It also gives you the FEV1, which would be correlated with all sorts of patient-relevant outcomes. Um, and there are also some practical reasons that we start with spirometry. One of those is that below a certain FEV1 threshold, methacholine is not considered safe. Um, and the other sort of practical thing is that methacholine challenge tests do take a lot of time in the pulmonary function lab. And as a result of that, they're, they're simply harder to book. We wait a longer time for those tests. Um, and so if your, bronco, if your spirometry with bronchodilator challenge shows responsiveness, that is specific. It's quite specific for a diagnosis of asthma in the right clinical context, and you can stop there. If it's negative, uh, you need to move on to a methacholine challenge test. 
Thank you. Now, you reported that 43% of patients who had a negative bronchodilator response actually had a positive methicoline challenge test, even before any medications were tapered. How does that finding affect your advice on how to proceed with testing for asthma? So I think, you know, I, I don't think it affects the diagnostic algorithm. I think you still start with spirometry and you, you move on to methylcholine. But what it, what it should do is it should influence uh, the diagnostic probabilities along the way, uh, you know, as you're trying to figure out if the patient in front of you has asthma. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, as clinicians, we're, we're all Bayesians, you know, whether we, we know it or not, you know, the way we approach a, a diagnosis in a, is in a Bayesian way. And um, if you what we said is let's start looking at, you know, that first test, which is spirometry, and, and let's see how it performs using methacholine, which is the second test. It's often used as the confirmatory test, uh, using methacholine as the reference standard. So we had 500 patients who had a negative bronchodilator challenge on the spirometry, and when we did the methacholine, 43% of those negative bronchodilator challenge patients ended up having a positive methacholine. Um, and so that was quite striking. You know, it, it translates into a 43% false negative rate and a, and a really not very good negative predictive value of only 57% for spirometry with bronchodilator challenge. Um, so I think practically you still start with that test, but the important message is you can't stop there. And, and that is something that's often seen in primary care. Uh, folks are using that not only as a rule in, but also as a rule out. Um, but it really shouldn't. It, it shouldn't reduce the likelihood of asthma uh, much at all in a patient with suspected diseases. It's just a very insensitive test. Dr. Cocroft, in your editorial, you discuss a couple of potential issues with the methicoline challenge test. Can you please explain those to our listeners? Well, um, okay. The, uh, the methicoline test is or can be quite variable from time to time in a patient. Uh, first of all, it has a um, a short-term repeatability of no better than plus or minus one doubling dose or concentration. That's almost certainly measurement imprecision rather than true variability. But the methacholine uh, airway responsiveness can vary strikingly uh, depending mainly on exposures, um, allergen exposure, occupational exposure in particular, um, viral infections, probably to a lesser extent, at least in adults, uh, can increase airway responsiveness and then removal of those and, of course, appropriate treatment can improve airway responsiveness. So the, the airway methicoline challenge has, we may be talking about this later, really quite a high sensitivity with, for a diagnosis of asthma, which means it doesn't have that many false negatives um, with two important caveats, the symptoms and exposures have to be clinically current, like ideally within the last year or two. Um, and secondly, methicoline has to be inhaled without ventilation. So it's a sort of a separate topic, which is really not relevant uh, to Dr. Gupta's excellent study. Um, so those are those are the important things. There's a huge problem in that in this population of asthmatics with normal spirometry and no bronchodilator response, it's really hard to find an independent, objective gold standard against which you can compare um, the sensitivity and specificity of the method test itself, and we're stuck with that.
perfect. Dr. Gupta, back to your study, can you please explain what you found regarding predictors of positive and negative methacholine challenge tests? Yeah, so this this comes back to those folks with a negative uh, bronchodilator challenge test. And and so we asked ourselves the question, you know, is there anything about the population or about the result uh, that we could use to make that negative test more useful? You know, is there anything that would get us to a, a, a good negative likelihood ratio that could be clinically useful? Uh, and so we looked at, you know, demographic things like age, sex, ethnicity, we looked at what meds patients were on. None of that really yielded anything. But what we found ultimately was that um, if patients had baseline obstruction on the spirometry, their pre-bronchodilator spirometry, that predicted, even with a negative bronchodilator challenge, that predicted that they would go on to have a positive methacholine. Uh, and that was the odds ratio was about two for that. So if you have obstruction, you're, you're about, you have twice the odds of having asthma uh, with methacholine as, as a reference standard. And that sort of follows the clinical gestalt in that, you know, if you're seeing a patient who's obstructed and doesn't have other reasons for obstruction like COPD or bronchiectasis, let's say, uh, even if the, the bronchodilator challenge is negative, you're going to maintain that high suspicion. Uh, and, and the corollary to that is that the lower the ratio, the more the obstruction, we found that the higher the odds of, the, of having a positive methacholine would be. So there was a, you know, a signal there in terms of uh, the magnitude. Um, we also had um, we also looked at how big the bronchodilator response was, and the thinking was you know maybe people with less of a bronchodilator response you know five percent versus ten percent um, would have a, a lower chance of then having a positive uh, methacholine and, and we did find that and so ultimately we tried to define sort of the the population that would be the least likely to have asthma and and when we did that we said okay let's take people with no obstruction and who have a tiny bronchodilator response of less than 5% but still in those patients 38% went on to have a positive methacholine so so the the conclusion there was that you know there, we really could not identify a combination of demographic factors or test findings uh on spirometry with bronchodilator testing that clinicians could use practically to reduce the post-test probability of asthma in patients in whom they suspected. So, um, you know, ultimately, this test just is not useful to reduce the post-test probability. It's helpful if it's positive. It's just not helpful if it's negative. Um, and I think, you know, this, this sort of correlation that we found with obstruction is it could have to do with, you know, people actually having disease and the obstruction being a reflection of, of airway remodeling. But it might also be explained, this correlation between obstruction and a positive methacholine could be explained by certain physiologic factors. And, and I think Don has, you know, has written on this before and has some interesting thoughts on what some of the physiology might be that might explain why obstructed patients might have a, a, a higher prevalence of airway hyperresponsiveness. Was I supposed to step in here? Yeah, Don, if you, if you have any comments on that, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, it's hard to sort out in real life, as I'm sure you appreciate, but patients with, as far as we can tell, pure non-asthmatic COPD uh, have airway hyperresponsiveness, a response to methacholine, a histamine that is closely related to how low their FED1 is. Now, we're talking about people with moderate to sometimes big-time airflow obstruction, not the kind of patients you see with asthma and a bit of airflow obstruction. So we're pretty sure that there's a geometric um, 
issue with narrow airways um, and the airflow, or at least airway resistance being proportional to the one over radius to the four or five power, depending on which formula you use. Uh, so a small change in um, airway diameter in people who are already obstructive gets a bigger change in resistance. So that uh, sort of geometric effect obviously will also be present in asthmatics with airflow obstruction. But a lot of the airflow obstruction in asthmatic has to do with remodeling, which means mainly airway smooth muscle um, hypertrophy, hyperplasia, which will add a, an airway smooth muscle effect as well as the geometric effect. Sorry to ramble. I try not to be too confusing. Okay. Thanks, Don. So for those patients who had negative initial methicoline challenge tests and then had their asthma controller medications tapered, what happened to their follow-up methicoline challenge tests, and how do those findings affect your recommendations? Yeah, so that's sort of the next question we asked. You know, we looked at spirometry with bronchodilator, and then we said, let's look at the methicoline itself and, and understand how that performs. And so we had, we had 94 patients who were on meds and who had serial methicoline challenge testing with medication tapering. And what we found is that 19% of those went from a negative methicoline to a positive as we tapered their meds. Um, and so in this case, you're sort of using methicoline as a reference standard for itself. Um, and you're saying with methicoline positivity as a reference standard, what proportion of patients on controller therapy uh, go from negative to positive as you taper? And it was about 20%. And so for patients on therapy, that's a false negative rate of 20% for methicoline uh, and not a very good negative predictive value you know, of 80%. So um, we also tried to sort of understand, you know, is one drug class more likely to do that than another? We didn't see that. We didn't see a statistically significant difference between drug classes. Um, but what did seem to matter was the PC-20 itself. So people who had a PC-20 in the 8 to 16 range were much more likely to have to become positive on methicoline um, as you tapered them than people whose original methicoline was greater than 16. Uh, and again, the, the definition of negative versus positive was the, we used the then GINA, uh, when we started this trial, we used the GINA guidelines uh, definition of a positive methicoline, which was less than or equal to 8. Um, so, so that was the definition, and we found that anyone between 8 and 16 had a much higher chance of then going below 8 as we tapered their meds. Um, and, it, and it, you know, a couple of things clinically from that. One is that, um, you know, if your methicoline was between 8 and 10, you had a 50% chance as we tapered meds uh, of dropping below 8. So, you know, that's kind of clinically helpful, and, and it, it tells you that we should probably, it's probably reasonable to use a higher PC-20 cutoff in patients on meds and probably useful uh, to do this exercise clinically uh, when you're trying to diagnose patients who come to you on therapy without a formal diagnosis to taper them and, and retest them. Um, and this sort of comes back to there, there is a, a literature on, you know, the effect of inhaled corticosteroids on, air, on, on the sensitivity of the methicoline challenge test and, and what effect it has on the PC-20 doubling dose and, and airway hyper-responsiveness. And, and I think, Don, it'd be helpful to hear from Don uh, on that literature because I know there's, there's quite a bit out there on that. Well, yeah, uh, corticosteroids improve airway responsiveness uh, to direct stimuli, not a lot, but certainly significant. Maybe on average um, a concentration or two, probably no more. 
um, improves indirect airway responsiveness a whole lot more. In fact, that meth- uh, sorry, mannitol, AMP exercise, uh, you can, or there are people that are even suggesting using uh, mannitol, for example, if you can make the mannitol test negative, that would be uh, one reasonable marker correlating with good control. And conversely, if it starts to become positive, that might be a, an early indicator that control is slipping. Uh, I would say about corticosteroids and methacholine is if the patient still has, quote, asthma-like symptoms, close quote, uh, on inhaled corticosteroids, and if those symptoms are asthma, then the methacholine test should still be positive. So, um, right. So, you know, that's a then you know it's it's the, the the concerning thing is when the patients are so well controlled they have little or no symptoms uh, that a negative methacholine no longer uh, completely excludes a diagnosis of, of of asthma. Right, right. Thanks, Don. And can you tell us about any spontaneous changes that were seen in methacholine challenge results over time in patients whose medications were not tapered? Yeah, so that was another angle. Uh, we, had, we had this population of 165 patients um, who had a negative methacholine off meds um, and then who actually had uh, repeat methacholines at 6 and 12 months still off meds. Uh, and so then, you know, we looked at that population to ask the question, what happens to MCT result over time, uh, random variation over time? And one might argue whether it's random or non-random, but variation over time. And we again said, you know, how do people fluctuate across this sort of magical threshold of eight milligrams per mil uh, that's been set as the as the threshold for positive test? And again, we found that about 15% of those patients became positive. So they went from a negative to a positive. And, and so again, using MCT as its own reference standard, it's telling us that a single test has a false negative rate of about 15%, just quite high. Um, and again, it was, it was interesting to look at the PC20. That folks who were between 8 and 16 on their first test were about six and a half fold more likely to then convert to a positive MCT compared to those whose initial test was greater than 16 milligrams per milliliter. Um, and then it sort of comes back to the same central argument around that eight milligram per milliliter cutoff, which is arbitrary. And practically in the real world, there are some challenges with applying that. And that's what this study is really about and really showing um, is that if you have a high clinical suspicion, one negative test is not absolute. If that suspicion remains high, you may need to retest. Um, and other groups have shown this kind of variability over time. It can have to do with a lot of different things. There's some element of random test variability. Uh, Don mentioned that, you know, there's a doubling dose variability even in short-term repeatability. This is much long-term. We looked at 6 and 12 months, uh, and then that brings in physiologic variability. We know that airway caliber uh, you know, there's some temporal variation in airway caliber in asthma patients over time. And then there's always the possibility that they had differences in antigen uh, or sensitizer exposure over time. You know, people who are seasonal allergic uh, patients might have been then tested later during their seasonal allergy, uh, and that would have changed the results. And again, I think, you know, probably lots of factors, and I'd like to hear from Don, too, in terms of his thoughts on, on what might have contributed to this variability that we found over time in results. Well, I, there's 
no, no doubt in my mind that the biggest uh, cause of uh, outside of medications, the, the, the major uh, causes of big changes in airway responsiveness would be exposure to and lack of exposure to an allergen or in a very small number of patients, an occupational sensitizer. I suspect um, that in the real world, most seasonal asthmatics tested out of season will have a negative methacholine test um, and will have a positive methacholine test um, in season, but maybe even at the beginning of the season, but you know, one or two weeks into having symptoms. So that would be, the, in my opinion, the biggest likelihood for significant changes in airway responsiveness over over uh, uh, the course of the year. Okay. That would that would be number one read. Okay. That makes sense. Now Dr. Gutierrez may play a role also... too. Sorry. Now, Dr. Fine. Dr. Gupta, you also found that upon clinical follow-up, pulmonologists still labeled a sizable proportion of patients who had a negative initial methacholine challenge test as having asthma. Why do you think that is? I think, you know, that was probably one of the more important findings. And, and to our minds, you know, the other findings that we've already discussed kind of built up to that. Um, you know, so we showed that it's, it, there's a lot of false negative in patients on meds. Um, there's a considerable amount, 15% false negative when you follow people over time, just randomly. Um, and then we had about 230 patients that we had a negative methacholine and were followed by specialists for a year and given an opportunity to get a, you know, a, a diagnosis from that specialist. And interestingly, 12% of them received an asthma diagnosis from the specialist despite that negative methacholine. Um, and I think it's just a reflection of, you know, the, the reality of practice. You know, we don't defer to a single test typically. Uh, we recognize that it's not a perfect rule-out test in, in the real world. And, and, and we place greater value on, you know, the clinical course of the patient in front of us, the response to treatment. Some of these patients have had trials of therapy for very typical symptoms, even in the absence of a, of a diagnostic test. Um, and some of them actually did become positive over time. We talked about the, the variation over time. So some of those patients would have had a, a six or 12 month positive methacholine, which would have helped the diagnosis. Um, others would have had response to therapy. And then others, I imagine there were phenotypes like work-related asthma in a few patients where, oh, you know, the first test was done when they were away from work, for example, or seasonal asthma, we realized that the test was done in the wrong season, as Don mentioned, uh, or things like exercise-induced asthma, which is sort of a phenotype that's, you know, that methacholine is less sensitive in. Um, and there have, um, there have been other studies showing an even higher discordance between MCT and, and pulmonologist diagnosis. And to Don's point, you know, it's, it's a little bit circular to get into the argument about what's the best reference standard, um, but I think it's arguable that, you know, a specialist following someone over time and seeing what happens to them is a reasonable reference standard, uh, you know, to say who really has the, the, the diagnosis. Um, I think we, we found probably less discordance than some of the other studies, but the ones that we compared to used a different protocol for their MCT. Uh, the ones that we compared to used a dosimeter protocol, um, which probably led them to overestimate the PC20s, um, whereas we use a tidal breathing protocol, and, um, and I think we were less prone to that. And, and, and this is one I know Don can, can comment on because I'm fairly certain Don and, and, and Freddie Hargrave were the ones who invented the, the uh, 
this particular tidal breathing technique. So, so Don, I'm, I'm sure you have something to say about this one. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, in fact, I personally invented the term DC-20 uh, way back in 1977, when most of the rest of the people on this conference probably weren't born or were just babies. <laughs> um, the ETS guidelines 20 years ago outlined two methods, Freddie's two-minute tidal breathing method and the dosimeter method uh, initially from Johns Hopkins, but but actually as modified by Freddie, and Freddie did all the work, um, said they gave the same results, but this led people to study it after the fact, because there was only one small study before the fact, and we really pretty much concluded that the deep inhalations with the dosimeter, um, which are known to cause bronchodilation and bronco uh, bronchoprotection in, quote, normals, close quote, also do the same thing in, in as mild asthmatics, or put it as uh, asthmatics with mild airway hyper-responsiveness, to the point that somewhere, at least in, not a huge number, but in 55 patients that we studied, um, a quarter, well, almost half of the patients with mild uh, airway hyper-responsiveness, PC20s, between, uh, say, 2 and 16, uh, had negative dosimeter challenges. So that makes the dosimeter method, it really ruins the diagnostic sensitivity. Uh, and it's a setup for a lot of uh, potential false negatives. So that's one of the main ERS recommendations that uh, a tidal breathing methylene inhalation method is much preferred. And if, if you must use a dosimeter, it can be done with inhaling to TLC and breath holding. Those two things markedly um, will bronchodilate the very mild asthmatic. Right. Okay. Thank you, Don. So thank you for using the tidal breathing method. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Dr. Gupta, how do your findings affect your understanding of the PC20 cutoff levels for positive or negative methacholine challenge tests? Yeah, I think that's sort of the central uh, thing about our paper. You know, we, if you look at those 230 patients, we broke down the performance of the test by the actual PC20. And so we kind of said, you know, what, if, what happens if they were between 8 and 10, 10 to 12, 12 to 14, 14 to 16, and greater than 16? And it was interesting. You know, the, the folks who had a PC20 of eight, between 8 and 10, half of them went on to get a diagnosis of asthma from the pulmonologist. So if you, you know, if you look at a guideline that says, you know, anything above 8 is negative, um, Actually, you know, that so-called negative test, if you considered 8 to 10 positive, would have a positive predictive value of 50, 50%, and, and likelihood ratio was 7. So, you know, really quite different in terms of what we're seeing in practice versus what we see in the quoted test behavior and performance. Um, and if you think about a patient with a, you know, a typical high pretest probability of, of asthma of about 60%, Having a PC20 of, of, let's say, 9 in that patient, you come out with a post-test probability of 90%. So in that patient, that's, that's diagnostic. You know? so, so what it tells us is that you know, there, there, there's something to be said about the actual number. Instead of dichotomizing it, it's sort of tempting to dichotomize it into a negative positive, but we're losing something if we do that. And, and it makes sense to actually look at the number and try to 
integrate that in a meaningful way in our when we're doing our pre-test, post-test probability uh, and use that. And, and I think where that becomes relevant, too, is that there's, there's still disagreement in the literature around what is a positive methacholine. Um, you've got the British Thoracic Society, which still very clearly says that, you know, PC20 less than or equal to 8 is positive. Anything above that is negative. Um, and that's what Gina used to say. I've noticed that in recent Gina guidelines, they've, they've gone away from actually giving a cutoff. Uh, but if you look at Canadian and American guidelines, they will allow for any value between 4 and 16 to be considered borderline and allow for clinical context to come in uh, in making that diagnosis, which I think makes more sense and fits better with our findings. Um, and I know that I think the European guidelines also say that, and I, I think, Don, you were part of that. So, so I'd like to hear your thoughts on sort of what happens behind the scenes at, at that stage, at the guideline stage. Well, yeah, that could open up a long bit of discussion. Um, in the ATS guideline meeting, that's over 20 years ago it was published, um, we recognized that the old cutoff that we always used from Freddie's paper was eight. We also recognized that the best case short-term repeatability was plus or minus one uh, doubling concentration. So at that point, we decided that eight plus or minus one concentration, which is four to 16, uh, could be labeled as borderline. Um, so that's where that came from. And, and actually, since I remain uh, a believer that the methacholine test may not be all that it's cut out to be, at least some people think, but I think the strongest point is its sensitivity and its negative predictive value. And I think using 16, um, using a higher cut point for anything, uh, any kind of test makes it more sensitive and gives it um, better negative predictive value. So as long as the symptoms are present today and the exposures, if relevant, are present here and now, then the 16 is a pretty good um, sensitive test. Now, I don't know if you really want to get into the ERS stuff now or not, but there were a number of major uh, changes, which I can mention if... if uh, if you think it's appropriate, Dr. Winter? Um, I think it's a fascinating topic, but for the sake of time, we might let people read those. Go for it. That's fine. <laughs> uh, last um, new question. Taken together, Dr. Gupta, what do your findings say about the reliability of a methacholine challenge test in both ruling out and in the diagnosis of asthma? Yeah, so I think you know this is this is really the central question that kind of motivated us to to do this study, and and many of us in practice just haven't seen the, the methacholine perform as well as it's it's supposed to perform or performed in the original studies, and we often see that tests and treatments don't in real world situations perform as well as they do in the original experimental populations that they were reported in. Um, but I think that you know this comes back to one of Don's earlier points and the point that he's made several times is that. I think probably the most important reason that our results differed in terms of having a lower sensitivity for this test was that patients didn't necessarily have active symptoms. Um, you know, we did administer the European Community Respiratory Health Survey, and about 70% of patients had symptoms, but that was on study enrollment, and they may not have had symptoms by the time they had their methacholine. But I think, you know, and that was sort of one of the, the questions is, 
you know, does this then, is this then a criticism of the originally described methylcholine test operating characteristics, or is it a different population? And the response to that is, I think what's happening in practice is we sort of think of those operating characteristics, but we don't think of the reality of practice, which is that we, we have a different population than what was studied in those, in those original uh, publications. And, and what's happening in the real world is patients with asthma are seeing their, their primary care physician and eventually getting referred to a specialist. They're waiting a few months before they see a specialist. And asthma is a variable disease. And they may, may or may not have symptoms by the time they see the specialist. Then the specialist will do the spirometry test. If that's negative, then a, a few more months go by. They get the methacholine. And the reality is that a, a fair proportion of patients at the time they're getting the methacholine don't have current symptoms. Um, and so that's just a reality of practice. And I think what our study is saying is that in, in the reality of, you know, a variable disease with testing delays and, and diagnostic delays that come in sort of in the path towards reaching a diagnosis, we've got to think of the real-world performance of this test. And it performs differently when patients don't necessarily have active symptoms. Um, and so I think that's, you know, it's not that it's an unreliable test, but it's less reliable in the clinical circumstances we end up practically using it in, in our real-world practices. Great. So for both of you, if you could give our listeners a closing thought on what you've learned from your experiences in this discussion, what do you want them to take away from this podcast? Dr. Cocroft? Well, I will just follow up on what Dr. Gupta just said. Um, I would argue that that uh, if a patient doesn't have symptoms um, and has normal spirometry, uh, I would even, considering how much of a challenge it is to get a methacholine test, I would consider deferring it until such time as uh, the patient has symptoms or, or is back in season, so to speak, or uh, medications have been tapered. Um, so I, that's probably the most important thing here, I think, is, is uh, well-controlled uh, asthmatics may have, and I could even say should have, normal spirometry, uh, normal lung function, and normal indirect airway challenges. And especially if you're talking about recent asthma, not of long duration, quite likely have um, normal direct challenges like methacholine. So that's, that's the important message that I think we're, we're uh, talking about. Wonderful. And Dr. Gupta? Yeah, so I think, you know, takeaways from, from our findings in the study, you know, real-world study, large study, uh, patients from the community diagnosed by primary care physicians, uh, first thing that, you know, a negative bronchodilator test doesn't do, shouldn't do anything really to your post-test probability of asthma in someone who, in whom you're suspecting it. Uh, if you see obstruction, though, on the pre-bronchodilator spirometry, that should significantly increase uh, the likelihood of asthma in your mind. Um, the other conclusion is with the PC20 is, you know, take a Bayesian approach. You know, don't dichotomize it into positive or negative. Actually look at the value, um, values above eight, um, you know, some of those patients will have asthma. Uh, depends on the on circumstance. Depends on if they're on medications. If you have a high suspicion, taper the meds. If you have a high suspicion, repeat the test. Um, and it can have important clinical implications. You know, if you if you've got somebody with a what you're calling a negative test, 
but it's a false negative, and you, let's say, say explain their symptoms or their obstruction on the basis of COPD and put them on a bronchodilator uh, without any inhaled corticosteroid, then you've got a, a possible mortality risk if the patient truly has asthma. So, so it's really important to get that right. Um, and, you know, I think just a general message that thinks that we often consider sort of sacrosanct or, or pillars of diagnosis like this 12% and 200cc bronchodilator response uh, or even the, the, the MCT of eight, those are, you know, arbitrary and based on expert opinion and worth uh, considering how they perform in the real world setting. Um, and I think, you know, the idea is you get as much information as you can at face value and you keep in mind the fallibility of the tests that we have in, in, in clinical practice. Perfect. Well, a big thank you to both Dr. Gupta and Dr. Cocroft for a great conversation, and a big thank you to our chess community for joining us today. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.